X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, July 8th. Have you subscribed yet? Please do subscribe. Please share it with some friends. We've been getting really good feedback. But as you know, we don't advertise a bunch, so we rely on you. Please do tweet out, Instagram, share, tell a couple friends, and do give a five-star review. The effort is to try to make this something that lasts for a long time, and for that, we need you. If you need to find it on all the platforms, you can go to Linktree slash The Local Portland. You also can, of course, listen to it at xraypod.com. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six headlines. We have another original x-ray report from Kate Kay on facial recognition. And our recent interview with candidate for Idaho's first congressional district, Rudy Soto, former student body president at Portland State University. X-ray. Today, back in the day, July 8, 2011, Space Shuttle Atlantis is launched on the final mission of the United States Space Shuttle Program. And today, back in the day, Ada Hastings Hedges. One of the finest poets in America, one of the finest poets in Oregon history, died in Portland on July 8, 1980. Hedges is best known for her poetry about the Oregon high desert. Oregon poet Ingrid Went described her as one of the first women's voices to, and I am quoting, present alternative visions of human connection and continuity rooted in traditionally female values. And from her sonnet number 12, they grew more passive with the meager years. Upon their lips and hearts the desert lay. The silence that had throbbed upon their ears. And after all, there was not much to say. Well, we do have some more to say. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. And so we say farewell. Multnomah County's Deputy District Attorney has resigned. Tracy Anderson's resignation came the same day Governor Brown announced Mike Schmidt would start his term as Multnomah County DA earlier than expected. Anderson worked for the day's office more than 20 years. She oversaw its domestic violence unit. Her resignation is effective July 17th. That'll be two weeks before Mike Schmidt takes office on August 1st. On Tuesday, Schmidt says he has no plans for a large-scale shakeup. He said he has asked Jeff Howes to remain his first assistant. That position serves as second-in-command, oversees the day-to-day management in the office. He said Howes accepted the offer. Schmidt said he has spoken with Underhill's three chief deputies, Don Reese, John Casalino, and Kristen Snowden. He said they will become acting chief deputies for now until he has an opportunity to work with them. And a bit of context, of course, the big question when you swap out somebody at the top, as we've seen with the police bureau and there's a new police chief, does that mean the culture of the overall unit, the culture of the institution, does that change? And how does that change? So we'll be watching a little bit with interest at what happens with the rest of the DA's office. As for Tracy Anderson, where did she head? She took a job with a private law firm located in Northeast Portland. They're called the Public Safety Labor Group. Who do they represent? They represent public safety unions up and down the West Coast, representing prosecutors, firefighters, parole and probation officers, and police unions. Meanwhile, Portland Mayor's Communications Director is leaving the country, headed to Canada. Eileen Park, Mayor Ted Wheeler's Communications Director, announced on Monday that she is leaving the office in a couple weeks, the end of July, says she will be moving to Canada. She was hired in October of 2018 after three years of working for COIN, Portland CBS affiliate. And now Eileen Park is heading for Vancouver, B.C. Nice town. And your daily dose of coronavirus data in Oregon. 218 new confirmed cases on Tuesday. That brings us to 10,605 known cases. And the Oregon Health Authority is investigating a workplace outbreak in Morrow County. That's Columbia River Processing, a dairy processing company with 22 cases being reported. 
recognize one of the reasons why there's so many outbreaks at food processing plants is that those are necessary jobs. It means that people have to keep doing them and they're in those places and they're getting sick. Thank you to the people who are making sure we get to eat. It also might send some signal about what would happen if everybody was going to work as normally. Umatilla County had 772 known coronavirus cases as of Monday, and the county saw 125 new known cases on Monday. It's one of eight counties in the state on a watch list for the coronavirus spread. As listeners of the local might know, Umatilla County includes Pendleton, Hermiston, Milton Freewater, and Umatilla. It's in eastern Oregon. It's got a population of about 78,000 people. That means about a full 1% of the Umatilla County population has known coronavirus case. Speaking of watch lists, since June, cases have been on the rise among Oregonians in their 20s. According to the health authority, Oregonians in their 20s total 21% of all cases in the state. That's about a fifth. Lane County is home to U of O, University of Oregon, it's 24,000 students. And in Lane County, there are more infections in the 21 to 30 age group than in any other age range. The new cases in that age group have all been traced to one common thing, house parties. Only 3% of Oregonians in their 20s who have tested positive for COVID-19 have been hospitalized. 41% of people over the age of 80 who have tested positive have been hospitalized. So if you're going to go to a house party, you might not have to go to the hospital. But be careful about hugging grandma or hanging out with anybody in a food processing plant. There were five new coronavirus deaths on Tuesday. That now brings us to 220 confirmed virus deaths. On Monday, by the way, Washington state added over a thousand new COVID-19 cases, shattering the previous single day record. Yesterday, they added 435 additional cases. They're now past 37,000 and they're at 1,384 deaths. Let's follow that PPP money. The Small Business Administration, the Treasury Department, have released data regarding the Paycheck Protection Program loans. The data includes information on loans from $150,000 to $10 million given to businesses and nonprofits around the country. The average loan size is $107,000. 86.5% of the loans are for less than $150,000. And if you go to the Treasury Department's website, they promote that number big. Overall average loan size, approximately $107,000. 86.5% of all loans were less than $150,000. It's in bold. It's italicized. That's the takeaway, according to the Treasury Department. But let's do the math. Because as we know, if you don't do the math, the numbers might lie to you. The number they don't put in bold and italicized on the Treasury Department website, and by the way, we did our own arithmetic, 72.8% of all the money went in loans over $150,000. Speaking with very rough estimates, the loans are targeted at 60 days worth of payroll expenses. So if you get a loan of $350,000 to $1 million, that's an estimated $2.1 million to $6 million a year in payroll or more. That's a pretty decent-sized business. If you got a loan of $1 to $5 million, that suggests your business had upwards of $30 million. If your business got up to $5 million in loans, that suggests your business has maybe $30 million in payroll expenses. I'm calling that a pretty big business. Not enormous, but, you know, pretty big. And if you count the money, not the number of loans, but the money, more than half the money, 56.6% of the money, went out in loans of over $350,000 to over $5 million. Those are pretty big businesses. I'm not saying it's scandalous. I'm just saying the bolding and italics choices are interesting. By the way, according to the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, companies with fewer than 20 workers make up 89% of American businesses. Some funny recipients nationally included big opponents of federal spending, including the Ayn Rand Institute and the Grover Norquist Group, the companies that received the largest amounts in Oregon, construction, steel and medical companies, and McMinimins. Counties like Deschutes, Hood River, Lincoln, Polk, and Yamhill saw a large amount of PPP dollars for their local beverage companies. 
And of these businesses and nonprofits, only seven reported they were owned by a person of color. I didn't say 7%. I, I said seven. Also of interesting note, based on census data, Treasury and SBA officials say the program helps support about 51 million jobs. There's a section in the data where the businesses reported how many jobs they plan to retain with the money. In Oregon, 120 businesses didn't answer that question. 95 answered with zero. 17 businesses answered they plan to retain 500 jobs. The majority fell around the 100-employee range. And 10 of the businesses that received between $5 million and $10 million, they answered either zero or left it blank. A cash cap to your DoorDash, a potential partial snub to your Grubhub, something that might abate or frustrate your Postmate, a goober to your, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to your Uber Eats, I shouldn't. Portland City Council may limit charges by third-party food delivery services. At the hearing today, Wednesday, remember, that's when the City Council meets. If you want to testify, if you want to watch it for fun, it happens on Wednesdays, right? City Hall, it's public. The City Council is going to consider an ordinance to limit services like DoorDash, Grubhub, Caviar, Postmates, and Uber Eats to a 10% charge for food deliveries. And they would cap the platforms that work off only customer pickups to 5%. Dozens of local restaurants and business groups have asked the city to make the change. Businesses are saying that high delivery charges are eating into their profits. According to the Portland Independent Restaurant Alliance, and I'm quoting, many businesses have stopped using delivery services altogether because of high commission rates, most commonly between 25 and 30 percent. More than 100 members of the alliance have signed an online petition asking the council to approve the limit. According to the petition, Portland area restaurants are, quote, dependent on delivery apps for both sales and visibility, yet they have no power in setting or negotiating commission rates. The proposed ordinance was drafted by Commissioner Chloe Udaley. She and Mayor Wheeler introduced that ordinance during the Wednesday's council meeting at 9.30 in the morning. If passed, the proposed ordinance would take effect immediately and it would limit delivery fees for at least 90 days after the pandemic emergency declaration ends. We can stop holding our breath. The Oregon DMV is now offering real ID driver's licenses and ID cards. Thanks to a completed multi-year computer system overhaul, the DMV is now able to issue the new cards. Starting October 1st, 2021, TSA agents are going to stop accepting standard driver's licenses as forms of identification to board flights. TSA says travelers will have to present a real ID, one that's compliant with those rules, in order to travel domestically. So thankfully, even if you do get to travel, you have time to prepare for the changes. The Real ID deadline was originally October 1st, 2020. The deadline was postponed for a year due to the pandemic. And in the category of silver linings in good news, the Oregon Zoo is reopening this week. It's been almost four months since the zoo closed its doors due to the shutdown orders for the coronavirus. Starting today, the zoo will be letting visitors back in with a members-only preview. They're doing that also Thursday and Friday. And then public reopening on Sunday. Like much else in the time of the pandemic, a visit to the zoo will look and feel a little different. Among the changes, timed ticketing. Zoo goers will reserve tickets for a specific time of entry. This will help the zoo limit the number of people at any given time to reduce crowding. Visitors will have to follow a one-way path through the zoo, again, to reduce crowding. Much of that path will be outside in open air and expect to see hand-washing and sanitizing stations placed throughout. And folks, for the sake of the zoo's brand-new adorable baby red panda, please do wear a mask. You should see the panda video. It's this little tiny baby red panda. It's the cutest thing. And that is today's Quick 6 Local run X-Ray. Portland City Council commissioners will vote next month on a groundbreaking law banning facial recognition used by government agencies, including police and schools, and by privately owned places like stores, banks, venues, and Airbnbs. In part two of a series leading up to this historic vote, 
X-ray reporter Kate Kay has the latest. Please look at camera for entry. Nope, that's not Blade Runner or even Black Mirror. That's the sound of a facial recognition-based security system that greets would-be shoppers at Jackson's convenience stores every night right here in Portland. If the city passes new rules, the details of which finally were unveiled last week, facial recognition would be prohibited at those stores. Portland City Council commissioners will vote on August 13th to join other cities, including San Francisco and Boston, in banning facial recognition use by government agencies, including law enforcement. But Portland's legislation, it goes much further than other bans. It prohibits the controversial surveillance technology in most privately owned places where the public is allowed. It would stop retailers or banks or hotels from using it for security purposes or to recognize loyal customers. It would prevent some schools from deploying facial recognition to bar certain people from entering. Venues like theaters or the Moda Center would not be allowed to use it to detect ticket holders. Facial recognition systems capture images of people's faces, then use artificial intelligence to determine whether they match the facial characteristics of a known person. Despite claims of improved security and convenience, studies have proved that facial recognition systems are less accurate when attempting to detect Asians, African Americans, and indigenous people compared to when detecting white faces. So for many, A ban on facial recognition is a matter of civil and digital rights and racial justice. Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has been a vocal advocate for a facial recognition ban for at least a year now. She made her mission clear during a January City Council work session. I want to ban this technology until it works as intended, right? That is my goal. There are some important gaps in the legislation, though. While the technology would be banned in private schools, Portland's public schools would not be covered by the ban because they are not under the city's jurisdiction. And it wouldn't ban use of facial recognition at the Portland International Airport either. The Oregonian has reported that Delta Airlines uses the technology there to screen passengers boarding nonstop international flights. And the ban wouldn't apply to some other places, including places of worship, private workplaces like offices or factories, and private residences. But the ban would cover a lobby area of an office building because it accommodates the public. And Airbnb rentals would be barred from using facial recognition. Giant tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft make facial recognition, but So do all sorts of small tech firms. Many sell it as a cutting-edge tool for crime prevention and security. A small St. Louis-based company, Blue Line Technology, makes the facial recognition system guarding the entrance at Jackson's stores here in Portland. The company sells its security products to convenience stores and a private school in St. Louis. What if you could stop retail crime before it happens by knowing the moment a shoplifter enters your store? This is how one of the many smaller facial recognition companies, California's Face First, advertises its facial recognition technology. And what if you could know about the presence of violent criminals before they act? 
Local business groups here say Portland companies would oppose regulations preventing them from using facial recognition. Skip Newberry is president and CEO of the Technology Association of Oregon. He spoke during that January City Council session, too. It was about facial recognition, or FRT for short. You know, when using FRT for public safety and security, there's definitely a lot of businesses that believe an outright ban is something they will not support. Um, but notice and consent as principles are something that, you know, are, are reasonable requirements. Alan Hippolito, director of special projects for environmental and social enterprise group Verde, also spoke at the council session. He said adopting facial recognition technology would increase disparities between the haves and the have-nots. Tech folks often talk about early adopters, those who are first to see opportunity in new technology. Well, racism and inequality are the original early adopters. They take the first seats at the table anytime we create something new, turning technology into a tool that increases systemic disparities. If Portland City Council passes the new rules, they would set in motion efforts to adopt policy on all surveillance technologies, so not just facial recognition. The city would create policy addressing other systems that gather biometric data, such as technology that scans the iris of your eye, or software that recognizes people by the gait of their walk. Chris Bushick is co-organizer of PDX Privacy. They're a local group that has pushed for the city to address all biometric identification and surveillance technologies. She said she's pleased the city could address all surveillance tech in the future. If you only ban facial recognition, then entities could work around that by using some other biometric. So I'm very happy about that. Portland's facial recognition ban would allow people to sue non-compliant private entities for damages, and they could sue the city itself for relief if a government agency is found to violate the rules. For more on facial recognition and Portland's groundbreaking regulations, check out the first part of this series on the blog at xray.fm. For X-Ray, I'm Kate Kay. Next up is Jefferson Smith's interview with former Portlander, and Idaho's first U.S. Congressional District Democratic candidate, Rudy Soto. From planning a career in politics to running a grassroots campaign across and up and down Idaho, here are Jefferson and Rudy. An Idaho native returned to Idaho and is now running for Congress, and now he has joined us. Rudy, it has been a long, long time, and I look forward to hearing your voice in about a second. Hey, Jefferson, it's good to be on here with you. Thanks for doing it. How are things in your world? How are you holding up during all this madness? You know, it's really just it's a wild time for all of us. And, uh, you know, you got to find the silver lining. So you know, I'm definitely doing that. And uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, it's unfortunate that it takes a pandemic and economic uncertainty and stability to bring into focus for people the importance of who our representatives are in, in, in government at all levels, but I think that's helping me a lot, and it, and it definitely gives me confidence that uh, I'll be able to forge a competitive race here. Well, what's and, your silver and, lining? And, I like that question. My lazy question tends to be, how you doing? I like the question, what's your silver lining better? What is your silver lining during the pandemic? Yeah, my, You know, my silver lining during the pandemic really has just been the the opportunity for things to slow down some and to connect with people um, just in a you know in a, in a, in a more uh, real way you know whether 
means picking up the phone and calling people I hadn't talked to for a while or, you know, reconnecting with, you know, relatives near and far. There's just a sense of stillness that uh, wasn't around as much that I think puts has has allowed us to put things into perspective. And so it's, it's helped me uh, really, you know, solidify a lot of uh, relationships uh, with people that, you know, have always remained important, but life has been too busy for us to, to maintain them sometimes. Trump won 59.6% of the vote in Idaho in 2016. What is the political landscape in Idaho now, particularly political landscape for a Democrat running for the United States Congress? Yeah, well, we have two, you know, two uh, Democrats, you know, at the top of the ticket here in the federal races that I think are of huge interest to people, Paulette Jordan for Senate and myself for Idaho's 1st Congressional District. You know, Idaho is one of those places where, uh, you know, it's, it's had historical, deep Democratic ties. Uh, you know, oftentimes it depends with, it depends on where the country is at as a whole. So, for instance, the last time a Democrat held the seat that I'm running for, uh, Idaho's first congressional district was uh, Walt Minnick, and he won with the blue wave that swept Obama into office, and he was toppled with the Tea Party movement in 2010. So uh, when uh, voter turnout is its highest is really uh, when uh, you know, a state and a district like mine is susceptible to uh, being flipped, essentially. The person you're running against, is this Russ Fulcher? Do I have that right? Yes, Russ Fulcher. He's a fringe member of the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives. He was the only member in Idaho's congressional delegation to vote against the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the Phase 2 bill um, that you know helped provide for free testing, uh, paid sick leave, unemployment, uh, you know, food. Uh, food stamps for folks struggling. Uh, and he was the only one in the House of Representatives from any of the surrounding states from this whole corner of the country to do so. And that's really par for the course for him. Uh, he's just a hyper-partisan, and uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, we think he can be picked off here. So part of what, it's so great to hear a voice. We can't, you know, back in the earlier days of the bus project you were the student body president at PSU uh, tell us more about your path from either to PSU or then from PSU and how you ended up where you are now yeah so you know I'm you know my, my slogan here interestingly enough is a different kind of Democrat which we think will is helpful to you know not getting people just to think of labels I uh, you know, and I'm a different kind of Democrat in that I'm a different type of person running for, for Congress. You know, my story is really unconventional. I started off, you know, I, I, I'm a member of the Shoshone Bannock tribe. I'm the son of a Mexican immigrant. I grew up in poverty and public housing among circumstances that lead a lot of kids into trouble, which included myself. I bounced around in the juvenile correction system throughout my state between the age of 12 to 14 and ended up going to Portland, Oregon to live with my older brother who uh, got out of here because that's where you know he felt like he needed to go in order to forge a better future for himself because it was a different time then. There was less opportunity. And now where I live is a much popular place. Idaho's you know, really uh, you know, 
busy and, and, and bustling, and it's an it's a attraction for a lot of people to move to. It wasn't that way growing up. And so, you know, I ended up uh, being a, a fortunate and, and one of the lucky ones to not end up in the school-to-prison pipeline because when I went to Portland, Oregon, because of the diversity, the support for education, social services, I was able to turn things around, go on to become the first in my family to graduate from from college where I was elected, as you mentioned, by my peers to serve as the student body president and went on from there to uh, enlist in the Oregon Army National Guard and go on to um, be a Hatfield Congressional Fellow to work in Washington, D.C. and continued my career at uh, non-profit, national nonprofit organizations, child welfare, public health, and economic uh, development, and then off, and then to the U.S. House of Representatives as a congressional staffer. And so, uh, Portland is really where all this kicked off for me. And so, you know, I'm looking to help people um, where I'm from not be left behind and to have a pathway to pursue their potential and to you know, access uh, a strong public education in the same way that I was. And you were a candidate for city council in Portland, weren't you, maybe back in 2010? That's right. Uh, I, you know, funny enough, I was I was an intern for uh, the late uh, Nick Fish, uh, who you know I really admired and looked up to. I was a senior. I was finishing up at Portland State. While an intern for him, I ended up uh, deciding to run for city council myself. It shows you how driven I was to make a difference. So it was when they had public-owned elections. So I tried to qualify for public financing. Didn't get it, but decided to stay in the race anyways. And it was a learning experience. I didn't raise money. I didn't try to. I wanted to learn the process and, 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 and go through, you know, basically learn the ropes. And so, you know, at that time, I, I definitely gained the understanding that there was a lot more that I needed to learn before I should ever try to do anything like that again. And so, you know, it's been uh, a decade since, and uh, I just put myself into gaining uh, policy and legislative experience and connections and resources that would prepare me to, you know, do, do, do what I can to uh, help, you know, create the change that we all need and, and deserve. The, uh, let's talk about some of the challenges you're facing in the race. Uh, and it's belied by, it's indicated by the fact that you brand yourself as a different kind of Democrat. That phrase, of course, something that you hope to be useful in a state that is, votes red for the most part, but has, uh, does, as if you said uh, at different times in history, a significant big D Democratic tradition. You're also hoping for a big turnout. Uh, what are sort of the challenging things you have to face? What are the political barriers in your way? You get a lot of questions about, will you vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker? What are the things that are bugging you on the race? Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing that's bugging me is name ID. You know, it's been a real struggle to break out in the local and, and statewide media. The print journalists are doing a great job of covering it, but outside of that, uh, I've, I've really had a tough time getting out there in front of more people. You know, I'll say, you know, folks on the on the right, you know, in the center, unaffiliated, as soon as they're they're learning about me, they're becoming excited. They're becoming engaged. They they feel connected to my story because you know I don't look and sound like most people they're used to, and and so you know just.
the biggest hurdle. And it's actually, uh, it's starting, you can tell uh, through some of the, you know, I've seen uh, commentary about the concern um, amongst far-right conservatives about candidate about about me because of that appeal to people regardless of party affiliation because I'm a veteran and so you know basically you know being on this interview helps me a lot because it's helping people through word of mouth and learn about me so I really appreciate you having me uh, on the show when it comes to uh, you know Nancy Pelosi uh, national uh, Democratic politics out of Washington D.C. I'm keeping a laser-like focus on the kitchen table issues that are most important to people. Of course, I'll weigh in with you know, my thoughts on the issues of the day that are, that are coming out of Washington. But most people are just focused on trying to make ends meet and you know, wanting a fair shot at the American dream. And that's where I think Democrats have a lot of opportunity. And so that's what my campaign has really been about, and it's resonated with people. There are just two congressional districts in Idaho. Did they split Boise down the middle to make sure that there wasn't a uh, that there wasn't a Democratic seat in the state? Absolutely, uh, they they did. It was gerrymandered, so that makes it tougher. Uh, but it's absolutely in no way, shape, or form unreachable. Uh, and so um, that's definitely uh, made it you know, more of a challenge. But in my home county of Canyon County, the second most populous, there's just an abundance of potential voters to bring into the fold that are, you know, impoverished, uh, you know, Hispanic uh, communities make up 20% uh, at 20% or more of, of the population that just, you know, haven't been as engaged politically because they haven't seen a candidate that looks like them. So, so I'm really excited to be getting a video out in Spanish soon to help, you know, really get out in front of those communities. And, uh, you know, we got to tap into the young people. So employing tactics I learned from the Oregon Bus Project will be paramount. And so I'm excited and looking forward to doing what we can um, in, uh, in the midst of a pandemic where most of it's going to have to be, you know, digital. And, and virtual and online and, you know, to reaching out by, by phone and in socially safety ways. Voting systems in Idaho. Y'all have vote by mail. How are you going to turn out the vote? Because that's the big challenge, right? Your opportunity might be to enfranchise a whole bunch of new people, energize a whole bunch of new people. As you said, the last time a Democrat won in a congressional seat in Idaho, it was based on big turnout. So that's voter registration and getting people to show up and vote. How do you show up and vote in Idaho? Yeah, so, you know, there's there's an ongoing debate. You know, we're seeing news percolating about uh, leaders in the state that are not wanting to have it be an um, all-male uh, election, which it certainly is looking like it needs to be and should be. Um, so that's something we're going to have to pay close attention to. And, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, it definitely should be, you know, an all-male ballot election, and so we're going to be pushing for that. But outside of that, you know, a lot of it's just getting, you know, pushing uh, ads on social media, getting signs up, increasing visibility. Uh, you know, if you the, the, the one one key indicator for me that that leads me to believe that 
there's just so much opportunity for success here is if you were to go talk to any 10 people on the street anywhere in Idaho's first congressional district and ask them who their representative is, maybe, maybe one, maybe one would know who that is. And the, the, the candidate I'm running against doesn't go out there and work to earn people's votes. So, you know, that's what I'm going to be. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm going to be doing is getting out to every single county. I went to the U.S.-Canadian border uh, city of Port Hill in Idaho and kicked off my tour last week and made it to uh, four counties. And we're going to be doing those kinds of treks and trips uh, throughout from top to bottom uh, because, you know, just going into, you know, just going into a community, engaging with people is, is really where it's at because if they don't see the other person and they don't even know who they are and it's just by default that they that they win, there's there's absolutely room to change that dynamic. Well, Rudy, the website is rudysoto.us. We're about to wrap, but thank you so much for being willing to go along with us and spend the time. It's great to hear your voice again, my friend. Thank you, Jefferson. I appreciate it. Thanks to Kate and Rudy for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thank you also for subscribing, giving a five-star review, sharing with a friend, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.